Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hello, and welcome to another episode of I Weigh with Jamila Jamil. I hope you're well. I'm good. Lots of work stuff going on. It's very intense. I'm doing lots of things that I never thought I would ever do. I did not have any of them on my bingo card for uh, 35 years old. Um, one of them is that I'm about to do uh, an animated movie with The Rock and Kate McKinnon and Keanu fucking Reeves and John fucking Krasinski. All these people that I love and admire so much. I can't believe I'm about to be in an animated film with them. I'm going to be such a fucking nerd at that premiere. Can you imagine how much of a geek I'm going to be? I'm going to ask everyone for a selfie. I'm going to be so embarrassing. And my manager's going to have to say what she said when I was at this Hollywood reporter shoot with all these brilliant icons that I totally didn't deserve to be around, but I think they probably just needed an Indian person. So threw me in. Um, she was like, can you stop pointing at people with your mouth open? And so she had to officially ask me to stop being a fucking loser because I was surrounded by my heroes, but I can't help it. I just feel like Hollywood's biggest competition winner. I will never feel like I belong here. And as I've said to you many times in this podcast, fuck it. Lean into the imposter syndrome, lean into it and enjoy it. Indulge in imposter syndrome. Think about how lucky you are to not deserve to be here and yet be here anyway, and then make the absolute fucking most of it. That's what I'll be doing at the premiere of this movie, Super Pets, that I'm doing. Lots of other unexpected things going on at the moment. Anyway, that's enough about me. I try not to talk about myself very much in these intros because give a fuck. Do you know what I mean? You're more interested in what I'm interested in, which is the people that I have on this podcast. And this week, I have someone so interesting and strong and supportive and unusual and fantastic. And it is a gentleman called Dr. Jackson Katz. He is an American educator, a filmmaker, and author whose work centers on violence, media, and masculinities with an added focus on media literacy. He uh, delivered a speech, a TED talk that went completely viral, like millions and millions and millions and millions of views viral. Um, that was about men's violence against women. And if you haven't heard or seen or read this speech, after you finish this episode of the podcast, I beg of you to do so, because it is one of the most extraordinary 17 and a half minutes of your life. And having seen that speech, I asked him, it was being circulated a lot after the murder of um, Sarah Everard, uh, which was a huge point of discourse across the internet uh, when it happened not so long ago. And so at the time I reached out to him just to say that his speech really moved me and is something that I haven't just not seen a man say, I haven't seen anyone speak about the violence that women face most often at the hands of men. Uh, in the way that he talks about it. And so we delve further into that issue and we talk about his history, his journey towards being someone who wants to spend his life educating uh, other men to become allies for women 
and explaining how toxic masculinity and patriarchy harms all of us, harms every single gender. Uh, we talk about gun violence. We talk about so many different things. And I could have talked to him for 400 hours, I swear to God, but he's such an informative man who comes armed with statistics, with empathy, with openness, with humility and, and, Honestly, it was just a fucking, like a point during the podcast, he apologized to me for just like going on and on and on and speaking on and on and on. And I was fucking thrilled because I'm exhausted having to talk about feminism and women's safety and women's rights all of the time. It was so wonderful to have a man finally come on and do this labor for us. So please just sit back and relax and listen to this excellent episode that you should feel free to forward to any of the men in your life that you can't be fucked to educate because he will do it excellently for you. This is the wonderful Dr. Jackson Katz. Dr. Jackson Katz, I'm such a big fan of yours. I'm so happy that you're here. Welcome to I Way. Thanks, Jamila. It's great to be with you. Um, I, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, uh, Dr. Jackson Katz is an American educator, filmmaker, and author whose work centers on violence, media, and masculinities with an added focus on media literacy, which I'm dying to get into with him. And he was also the first man to minor in women's studies at the University of Massachusetts. And you also hold a master's degree from the Harvard Graduate School of Education and a PhD in cultural studies and education from UCLA. So therefore, I couldn't feel in safer hands uh, than I do right now having this conversation with with you. Um, I first became aware of you upon finding your speech a couple of years ago called Violence Against Women. It's a men's issue. And it's just over 17 minutes long. And I've seen it so many times because it's one of the best deliveries on the overwhelming societal issue at large around the violence that women face. And I'm, even as I'm talking about this, I'm so aware of what we're about to talk about, which is the problematic wording of calling it violence against women. And that's one of the many important topics that you bring up in this speech that I'm going to link to everyone who listens to this episode. I'll make sure to link to it on my Instagram. But can we talk about that incredible speech? That was what, five years ago? Well, it was 2013. Um, oh my I, God, it yeah. was more than that. Yeah, I, del- I delivered it in the, in the fall of 2012 and it went, it went live um, online uh, in 2013. My goodness. And I remember thinking even back then that this felt so modern to see a man talking about this issue so uh, passionately and such an informed and compassionate and active manner where you were actually calling for action and yet... Even I didn't know that you were, I was almost eight years late to finding that video and also that you have been doing this for decades and that there are actually a lot of people, including in particular men who have been doing the work that you do for quite some time now. One thing that I've learned from that whole experience, and I still get emails and I still get people contacting me to this day who tell me that they had never heard a man say the things that I was saying. And they were a little shocked that it was several years before me too. And I was like, Wait a second. It was not just a few years before me too. It's like, it's like my, as you said, Jamila, my, my colleagues and I have been doing this kind of work, um, you know, engaging men, thinking critically, um, about 
men's violence against women from a, from the, you know, the men's perspective, if you will, and, and engaging men with a whole range of, you know, feminist issues, to be honest with you, um, since the late 1970s. And so the idea that somehow, you know, something in 2012 or 2013 was, was seen to be by many people, I appreciate, seemed to be like cutting edge suggested to me how much we work that we have to do, my colleagues and I around the world, the men who in a multiracial, multi-ethnic sense who are doing this kind of work, how much we have to step up our game. And I, I mean, in terms of scaling up the things that we've already been doing, because so many people don't even know it exists. I think one of the things that I and the millions and millions of people around the world felt in watching your video, regardless of their gender, I felt so much less gaslit about this issue because that is one of the main tools of, and there are so many tools yet used to silence women who speak out against the violence that we receive often at the hands, most often at the hands of men. Uh, we are gaslit about it or we are immediately silenced by, you can often be men's rights activists or just disgruntled men who say, you know, well, technically and statistically more men are sexually abused, more men are subjected to violence out on the street. The world is technically unsafe for men. And they use that to shut the conversation down because they have statistics at hand. And what always baffled me until I saw your speech is that no one realizes that, you know, it's not women who are inflicting all of that harm against men. It's a minority of women inflicting that harm. It's men hurting those other men. It's men sexually assaulting those other men, as well as women and children. So this, right. is, this is an issue that we need to talk about. You can't just shut it down by saying men are also hurt by men. That can't be our bar of where we're happy for society to exist at. That's right. That's right. And I, I, I often say just to, to use, you know, easy phrases that can be easily digestible. The same system that produces men who abuse women produces men who abuse other men. And, you know, men's violence against other men is one of the great problems and great tragedies of our species going back tens of thousands of years. Mm -hmm. Men's violence against other men. Of course, men's violence against women is the front line of my work, but it's not one or the other, really. I'm constantly making the point that the, the the same system again that produces a, a 19 year old guy who you know sexually assaults his uh classmate and you know at university or you know at, at college or university is the same you know after a night of partying is the same system that produces a 27 year old man who beats up his pregnant wife because he's freaked out that she's gonna start focusing somewhere else other than him and his needs and so he's losing control and he acts out by a, a, aggressing against her is the same system that produces a 39 year old you know corporate executive who sexually harasses his colleagues or his subordinates in the workplace is the same system that produces a, a 58 year old white guy in the you know in the hills of you know mountains of Utah who goes out in the woods and shoots himself in the head in response to a series of life circumstances they're all connected and, and sophisticated people make those connections. And yet so often in the discussion about men's violence against women, you will hear men say, just like you referenced, oh, well, what about violence against men? As if they're not connected. And it's just, they're just showing their ignorance on some level. And it's so frustrating to me because the women in the multi-ethnic, multiracial women's movements around the world have been talking about this and trying to point us in this direction for decades. And yet they still get called often anti-male, male bashers, they have an agenda against men. And yet they're, what they're doing is, is, is so life affirming for men and boys, as well as for women and girls. If these, if these ignorant men would just relax, take a deep breath, maybe read a book, maybe go to a training, go to, go, go listen to people in the domestic and sexual violence field, talk about the subject matter. Maybe they would see that there's actually some great compassion and insight for what's going on in men's lives as well. 
One of the things that I found so particularly interesting about your speech is when you discuss the the not almost like grammatical, I guess, way in which we break this down, how impactful that is on the way that we look at, think about and handle violence. So as, as you were just mentioning that men say, well, what about violence against men? It's because we haven't put a protagonist at the beginning of that sentence uh, that it's men's violence against women or men's violence against men, because we don't have that that protagonist. Uh, and I don't know the correct grammatical term, and I'm about to ask you for it in a minute. But because we don't have that 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 part of the sentence, they're able to sort of fob women off with that, as if this is a terrible thing that's happening to women and a terrible thing that's happening to men, and there is no actual perpetrator. And so, will you break that down for me and my audience, please? Sure. I mean, obviously, this is a critical piece of the paradigm shift or the the shift in framework that I argue needs to happen. In, in other words, most people continue to this day in, you know, 2021 to think about um, domestic and sexual violence and sexual harassment and those all those related issues. They think of them as women's issues that some good men help out with. And we need more good men to help out those women because it's really about a women's concern and it's a women's issue, but it doesn't mean that men can't be supportive of those women. That frame itself is so deeply problematic. And one of the, one of the reasons for, the, for looking critically at language and the way that we talk about this very subject and the sent, literally sentence at the sentence structure level is that language structures thought. People understand the world through their interpretation and narration of the world through their use of language. And so if you help people think about how they think and how they use language to express thought, it, it opens up all kinds of new ways of thinking. And, 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 and uh, so here's a handful of examples to your specific question about how the current language that so many people use to talk about the subject of, you know, gender-based violence keeps us in the old paradigm or the old framework. So people use passive voice all the time. They'll say things like, how many women were raped on university campuses in, in the, you know, United States or the UK last year, rather than how many men raped women on university campuses. They'll say things like, how many girls in a given school or school district were sexually harassed last year rather than how many boys sexually harass girls or how many girls sexually harass girls. You'll hear people say things like how many teenage girls got pregnant in this country or that state last year rather than how many men and boys impregnated teenage girls. And I say men and boys because the majority of teenage girls who are impregnated are impregnated by majority age men. But when's the last time you heard men focused on in discussions about teen pregnancy? I mean, even the, even by the way, the visual when you have an article in the, in the, you know, online or some somewhere in a news in a magazine or something about quote unquote teen pregnancy is the picture of a young woman with a big belly or something. And it just reinforces this is about girls. This is about women. Meanwhile, we're the men. We're the adult men, much less the boys, you know, who are implicated in the pregnancy as well. I mean, even the term violence against women is problematic because it's a passive phrase, right? Violence against women is a bad thing that happens to women. But nobody's doing it to them. They're just experiencing it kind of like the weather, right? But if you insert the active agent, men, you have a new phrase, men's violence against women. It doesn't roll off the tongue as easily, but it's more accurate, isn't it? It's more honest. And and I know, and Jamila, I know you'll get this pushback too. Clearly, I understand, we understand that there's women's violence against women. There's mother to daughter child abuse. There's lesbian battering. There's peer-to-peer harassment, abuse, and violence by women against other women and girls. 
Uh, there's no doubt about that. It's not acceptable. It's not okay. But um, the vast majority of violence against women in the world is done by men. And the overwhelming majority of sexual violence against women is done by men. But you wouldn't know that from the phrase violence against women because men are absent from the phrase. So the very act of saying men's violence against women rather than violence against women moves us a little bit further to being honest and honestly accounting for what's really happening and put some accountability back in the language. And by the way, that's what using active language does. It makes it puts accountability back in the language because so much of the discussion about violence in our society is passive and so much of the language is passive. And it's not just, by the way, men's violence against women. It's other forms of violence. You, you'll mm-hmm. often hear the, the use of passive language as if everybody's afraid of somehow implicating the perpetrators. And sometimes there's good reason for that. Sometimes you don't want to participate in perpetuating racist or ethnic stereotypes. And sometimes using, you know, neutral language is, is effective in that. But I think when it comes, when it comes to gender based violence, a lot of the reason why we use passive language, and by the way, the individual speakers aren't necessarily conscious of this. Sometimes they are, but they're often not conscious of what they're doing by using language in this way. But it's, Partly it's taking care of men's feelings about being, quote unquote, attacked if the truth is being told or somebody is telling the truth to use active language. In other words, a lot of men react really defensively to the idea that somehow they're implicated in this as a problem. And a lot of men will say, what about, you know, I'm not a, I don't abuse women. I don't abuse my girlfriend. I'm not a, a, a rapist. I resent the implication that just because I happen to share the same secondary sex characteristics as the majority of perpetrators that I am somehow implicated in the commission of their crimes. And I don't want to be guilt tripped. And, you know, I don't, you know, and, and I think this is really the men's, the way that so many men react defensively that has sent a message to women. And I'm making general statements here, of course. And it's not just women, women and others beyond the men, women binary, but certainly women. The message to women is if you use active language, if you use accountable language, if you say this is a men's issue or it's a men's problem, if you say men's violence against women rather than violence against women, if you use active language, some men are going to be hostile and angry and push back. And so a lot of women, including women in the domestic and sexual violence fields, have learned this years ago. And they realize, you know what? We have to work successfully with men, especially law enforcement. And law enforcement tends to be dominated by men, even though women have made significant progress, still dominated by men. We have to work with political bodies, you know, state legislatures and, you know, parliament and everything else. We need money for funding for our programs to serve survivors and, 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 you know, victims and survivors. And we can't afford to be seen as anti-male. We can't be seen as the ones who are always calling out men if we want to successfully work with men in those institutional settings and political settings. And also a lot of women have men in their private lives, their intimate lives, husbands, boyfriends, friends, colleagues, you know, who they don't want to always get into arguments with around this subject matter. And so they they use gender neutral language or they use passive language and because they decide to, you know, to, to, to work on other issues, if you will, and not really fight that particular battle to use a violent metaphor. Um, and I think one of the, one of the roles that men can play in this work is that to the extent that men say the things that I'm saying, mm-hmm. it takes pressure off of women. The more men and, and men, not, you know, pr- prominent men as well as men, you know, in everyday life, the more men say these kinds of things, the less women are going to be accused of being anti-male for just telling the truth. And, and, and I often say, you know, 
the truth isn't anti-male unless, unless of course it is. But I don't think, I don't think it's really anti-male to just be honest. And I, as a man, when I hear about how much, how much violence men are perpetrating against women, and I've been, you know, I've known about this for a long time, but when I hear about it, I don't get like defensive, like I'm being attacked when these women are angry and upset. I don't, I don't feel like I'm being personally attacked. I feel like, oh my God, this is a huge problem. These women are speaking up and they're, they're right. It is a huge problem. And I respect their leadership. I respect the fact that they have the guts to speak up, both about their personal experience and the experience of all women and children. And I think as a man, what can I do about it? How can I support this? How can I make a difference? Rather than hunkering down into a defensive crouch and trying to deny it and say, not all men are the problem. Not all men. You're blaming me. It's like this is so childish in the face of these huge problems. You, I mean, in that speech all those years ago, you talk about silence being its own kind of form of complicity. And, you know, and I think that back then, even when we were in discussions about gender, about race, about all kinds of different things, it's really only been recently that we have started to actually understand the concept of silence being complicity. I think this last year of of protests and and you know post the deaths of George Floyd and, and Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor, uh, via the lens of of racism specifically against African Americans in particular, we have finally learned that there is complicity and and violence in our silence. And so it's not good enough to just hold your hands up and say, well, you know, I'm not. I'm not doing it. I'm not a racist. I, I've never harmed a, a black person in America or anywhere else in the world. That's not enough. What are you doing to counter it? What are you doing to fight that system? Because if you're not doing something, then you are explicitly uh, condoning it. You're in. You're. You're. You're also. You're also being able to benefit from the luxury of the privilege of being a part of the part of the system that oppresses these people. Even if you're not the actual, literal, active oppressor, you are benefiting from that oppression. That's right, and I, I and I and I'm glad you made the analogy about race and racism and white people's responsibility vis-a-vis working against racism and men's responsibility vis-a-vis sexism and misogyny and the, the direct direct connection between these issues on many different levels, but certainly conceptually, um, it's the same exact thing. I mean, it's like, like, like a white person saying, because I myself don't burn crosses on people's front lawns or paint swastikas on, you know, the fence or something. I'm not a racist. And therefore I don't need to work against racism because I personally haven't perpetrated these horrible abuses. It's those kinds of people that do it, not me is very similar to a man saying, I don't rape women. I don't beat my girlfriend. I don't harass women. So this isn't my issue. I mean, it's, it's, it's literally as simple minded and problematic for a man to say that as it would be for a white person to say something mm-hmm. similar. And, and I think it's important to make those connections. And by the way, in the Black Lives Matter movement or the movement for black lives, both in the United States and all over the world, sparked, you know, I mean, or accelerated, I should say, by the, the murder by Derek Chauvin of George Floyd, as opposed to saying George Floyd's murder. That's a passive mm-hmm. way to say it. But um, um, one of the notable, f- f- you know, features of the movements, the, 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 the Black Lives Matter movement that was accelerated as a result of this was, um, was how many white people were out in the streets. How many white people, and that was remarked upon by lots of commentators, both in the United States and elsewhere, is that the driving force behind the movement was young people of color, especially African-American people. But there was a ton of white people out there, 
you know, showing solidarity, support, and 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 actually putting their bodies out there and in support of this, you know, racial justice movement. And I think we need exactly the same thing when it comes to men supporting women and women's efforts to achieve gender justice and equality and reduce dramatically, you know, the, the levels of men's violence against women. We haven't gotten there yet. We're not there yet. Although I have to say, the day after Donald Trump was inaugura- inaugurated in January 2017, the women's marches, which at the time were the biggest one day sort of protest marches in United States history until Black Lives Matter surpassed that. But it was a huge event, right? All over the United States in, in multiple cities. And I was, I attended the, um, the one in Los Angeles with my, with my then, uh, I don't know, 14 year old son, um, 15 year old son. And my wife's attended and a lot of my friends attended the one in, in Washington, DC. Um, there were tons of men out in the streets that day in, in Washington and in, in Los Angeles and New York and Boston. There were tons of men out in the streets. And when I was in Los Angeles, I was like, it was shocking to me. I mean, a really positive way how many men were out there. And yet there was no discussion about that. It was more like, okay, because it's called the women's march and you don't want to say, Men are out there because you want to, you want to acknowledge that women's political energy and strength and outrage and indignation at, you know, at the election of Trump and the misogyny that was, uh, part of the, the, the 2016 campaign. You don't want men to step on that story, but I'm just telling you, there were tons of men. I mean, I, I, my estimate and, and other people that I knew estimated 20 to 30% of the people were men. The point is, we we need to create a situation where that's not even exceptional, where that's seen as normative and expected, rather than some unusual event. Yeah, I can. I I think that from what I see of the discourse online, that when men do make an effort towards towards supporting women's justice, uh, some women can treat it as like, yeah, like a bit fucking late. So they're not really willing to offer any applause. But my personal stance on it is that I do want to make a big deal out of it. I do want to kind of almost like not deify, but glorify it and, and, and encourage, use that to encourage other men to participate. And I, I completely, I do not in any way invalidate, I'm not trying to invalidate the feelings of those who are just like, I'm not going to fucking congratulate these men for like their basic common sense. But I do think that for me, for me, I get excited when I see progress. My whole podcast is about progress, not perfection. And I want to encourage more of that progress. And, and I'm very hard on the men around me. You know, I live with a bunch of men uh, in the house. I'm the only woman in my household. And, and whenever I'm talking about men's violence, especially years ago, they used to get a little bit prickly because they're all very soft, sensitive, kind men, none of whom have ever, you know, or would ever lay a finger on a woman. And they would use that as an argument as to why what I'm saying doesn't include them. And I would always say, tell me any explicit action you have ever made to protect a woman or women in general. Give me one. And none of them could. That's right. Not one of them had made like an actual active move towards women's justice. And so therefore they don't get to exclude themselves from right. this nightmare. Oh, that's great. That's absolutely the case. And it's so many men who are quote unquote good men who, who see themselves as good human beings and are compassionate human beings. If they were honest, would, would have to say they've never attended a, ra- a take back the night rally. They've never donated money to battered women's shelters or, or rape, rape crisis centers. They've never challenged or interrupted other men who are acting out in sexist ways other than if they saw an actual, you know, assault in front of them or something. But they, they, they didn't interrupt even, you know, jokes that the guys will tell, you know, sexist or misogynist comments that men will make in groups of all men. 
most men have remained silent. And, and I, I often say not because necessarily they agree with what they see or that they, that they, they are somehow, you know, embodying the same, you know, belief systems necessarily as the man who engaged in that abusive behavior or talk. But whatever the reason that they don't say anything, they don't say anything. And their silence is read as consent or complicity in the enactment of whatever beliefs or behaviors is being, you know, another man is engaging in or other men are engaging in. And so there is this sort of false consensus. I mean, I think this is part of what's going on. There's a false consensus in certain parts of male culture where guys think that what they're doing is completely acceptable and normative in part because men who don't agree don't speak up. And, and, and one of the reasons, by the way, Jamila, one of the reasons why men don't speak up is because a lot of men are afraid of other men. They're afraid. Mm -hmm. I was about to say this. They're afraid of the violence of men against them. Well, they're, yes, they're afraid of violence against of, of other men. In some cases, that's a realistic fear. In mm-hmm. other cases, they're, it's, it's social fear. They're worried that they're going to say something that's going to lose them status within the, the, you know, the, the bro culture, if you will, or with, among men. They're going to be seen as soft or weak or taking the women's side against men or being too politically correct or, um, or something like that. And, they worry, and sometimes it's a realistic fear. I mean, I, I don't want to completely dismiss it. They worry that taking that stand as a man, anti-sexist stand, will cost them something in their relationships with other men. And that will be often awkward interpersonally with other men. And because they haven't practiced it or they haven't seen it very much, they haven't seen it modeled for them by other men, including adult men in their lives, whether it's fathers or other, you know, you know, um, father figures, what have you, or in the mainstream media conversation, they haven't seen it modeled very often. In other words, they haven't seen men interrupting other men's sexism in a way that's subtle and sophisticated, but not, and not necessarily holier than now. Cause self-righteousness, like if, if I'm not talking about being self-righteous and saying, no, like virtue signaling is very like off-putting. Right. It's off-putting just like with white people saying, making it clear to other white people, I'm more anti-racist than you because you just did that. And I would never do that. That turns people off. But because men don't see that and they don't they don't feel confident that they have the skills to do it, they don't feel like they have the permission to say anything because it hasn't really been part of the the normative male culture. There's all these pressures on men and the sum total of of all of this is that a lot of men remain silent. And so a big I think a big part of what has to happen is we just have to break the silence and we have men have to see that other men are not comfortable with the behavior of some of us. And by the way, I'm not naive about this. I, I do think that there are some men who are very much invested in maintaining the status quo and, and, and are not going to be just, you know, eager to be, you know, social activists around disrupting and dismantling patriarchal power and control and privilege. That would be naive. There, there are some white people who are clearly invested in maintaining a certain racial hierarchy that they don't want to disrupt. And so they're going to be pushing back. So I think that's going to be true with some men, but I do believe there's an awful lot of men. And by the way, this is a product in many ways of now generations of feminist activism across, you know, race and ethnicity and all over the world. There's an awful lot of boys, for example, who've grown up with feminist mothers and who've grown up with feminist friends and colleagues and, and, and have sort of normalized certain, certain things that feminism has taught that used to be radical. And now they're completely mainstream. And, 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 and I, I think there's an awful lot of those men. I think the next step for those men is not just to say, I, yeah, I think women deserve to be treated with respect and dignity. I think they should get the same pay as men. I think they should have the same opportunities. Tons of men will say that, but we need more than that. 
more than just believing in formal equality, we need men who have the courage and the strength and the self-confidence to interrupt other men and both individually and institutionally take some risks, not just say, it's not my problem. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now listen, we all carry around different stresses, big, small, medium size, and a lot of us keep them bottled up because sometimes we just have to. But doing that all of the time can really, really start to negatively impact your life. And I say that from experience. I'm British. We are told to never say how we're feeling about anything ever. And uh, that's why so many of us are so sad. Now, a way that I was able to remedy that was by having therapy, which was super helpful for me, not only because it's amazing to get things off your but also all week, you know, as you're bottling things up, because it's not always the time or place to say exactly how you feel, you know you're going to get that hour where you're able to get everything off your chest and say it exactly as you want to. And this therapist isn't going to take it personally and they're not going to hold it against you or throw it back in your face during an argument over dinner next week. You just have this complete freedom. Honestly, I think everyone should have therapy, regardless of whether they think they need it, because it's so amazing to have a confidant. It's a journal that talks back to you and helps you with all of your problems. I think therapy is just a safe space to get everything off your chest to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, then maybe you should give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be super convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and then you can switch therapists if you don't like them anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash iWay today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash iWay. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. (laughs) Well... Oh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. Can you break down, like if we were to imagine the scenario, let's say, um, not to be completely stereotypical, but here I go. And I also attend poker night. So I'm just saying we have a guy's (laughs) poker night and we have uh, a man saying problematic sexist or harassing things about a woman that perhaps everyone else knows or even doesn't know. You are a male who wants to interrupt this, this uh, normalized flow of, of problematic conversation. What would you do in that situation as the male who wants to interrupt it? Well, it's an important question. I would, I would say, Context is everything. And so in my teaching, like in, in, in my teaching of the bystander approach and my, my and my colleagues development of this approach decades ago now in the mentors and violence prevention program, the MVP, we call it the MVP model. Um, we always say 
it's impossible to tell people in a given situation what they should do because there are too many factors and variables that you can't know. You can only help people think about their ethical decision-making process, who they have responsibility to in these various circumstances, and then how they have to think through their responsibilities to the various parties and, and to themselves, and then act based on that understanding. So, um, like, like, for example, and we also say, I also say that interrupting or challenging sexist comments or, or behaviors before, during, or after the fact is an important way to think about it. So in other words, it's not just at the moment that it's said that you need to say something, or if you don't say something, you have now been part, become part of the problem, because that's a high bar. Because oftentimes in a public space, like a, when I say public space, a group of guys playing poker, that's there's a lot of tension around the idea that somebody who just said something, who thought what he was saying was was normal or inoffensive, or at least was going to be received well by the group. If another member of the group is calling him out on that directly, that's a confrontation. It can be very difficult. And, and a lot of guys will back away from this, even if they know that they want to say something, they won't say something. Mm -hmm. But, but, but later on, for example, saying something to the guy the next day and saying, take on him his aside own. Yeah. on his own yeah. and saying, you know, I, I didn't want to say anything in front of the guys, but you know, when you said that, it really made me feel like, you know, you're really not, you know, respect and respectful. And I know that's not who, who you are or you, who you want to be or something like this. I'm not, I'm, I mean, you can't tell people what to say because again, context is everything, but taking somebody aside after the fact and talking to him is very different than confronting him in the moment. And I don't believe that just because you didn't confront him in the moment, you've missed the opportunity to be, mm -hmm. to be, to be helping to be part of the change. Can I just give you one? I'll give you one example of, please. Yeah. I, I do a lot of trainings with, um, uh, with professional educators and others in all kinds of different settings, but certainly in the athletic world. And I've been working in that world for about 30 years now. I was doing a training at a, an elite East Coast, uni United States East Coast University with an athletic department. Cause you know, in, in the, you know, in the U.S., athletics is a big part of universities and colleges. And, um, there was a young man who was a, a, a soccer coach or football coach and he, um, coached the, the, the men's team, but he was also the coach of a boy's 14 year old soccer or football team. And he's, he, he recounted this experience that he had that he said he felt really bad about where a, recently a player of his had used the word rape in a sentence. It was in reference to the other team. Like we're going to, we have to rape that team or something totally inappropriate. Mm -hmm. And the guy said, I was so um, taken aback by the fact that he used this language that I was, I froze and I didn't say anything and I feel really bad about it. And, and he said, what should I have said? He says to me, what should I have said? And I said to him, well, are you still the coach? And he said, yes. And I said, well, what about just going back next time you have practice before you get out in the field, just say to the guys, look, a couple of weeks ago, one of you said, use the term rape in a really inappropriate way. And I, I didn't know what to say because I was so taken by surprise, but then I thought about it and this is what I want to say. And then say it, say, I don't think it's appropriate to use language like this, this trivializing and hugely important, you know, abusive behavior that some men engage in against women and against other men. You didn't miss the opportunity just because it didn't happen at the moment that it happened, you know, that, that the, at the first instance. And he hadn't, it had, that hadn't, hadn't occurred to him. So I think if we think more expansively about what it means to be 
a responsible person in our peer culture to our friends, to our colleagues, to our family members, and to ourselves. And by the way, what I, when I, when I say to ourselves, what do I mean by that? I mean, I think we do have a responsibility to ourselves. And if, for example, if you're a person who believes that you stand for justice and fairness and equality and nonviolence and people should be treated with respect and dignity and their physical and sexual boundaries need to be inviolable. If you believe that about yourself, this is what I believe. And then you're confronted with situations where this is not happening right in front of you. People are disrespecting other people's boundaries in those ways. If you don't speak up or if you don't interrupt it in some way, in a sense, you're not living up to your own aspirations for yourself of who you are or want to be. So how can you align your behaviors with your sense of who you are or want to be? And, and it's not always easy because taking action is not always easy. In fact, there's all kinds of impediments, as we've discussed, to taking action, even when you know that what you're seeing is wrong. But if you think about your responsibility to yourself in that way, um, that, that it shifts the conversation, I think, for a lot of people. And by the way, c- c- what was just one last point? I'm sorry. I'm no, I'm please. No, okay. this is great. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. You have, I always say you have a responsibility. It's nice to take a break if I'm fucking honest, mate. Like it's really nice to have a man talk about this and educate other people for a change instead of me having to harp on about it. So I'm loving this. Please keep going. Talk as long as you like. You're so welcome here. Well, thank you very much. And by the way, I didn't say this at the beginning, but I totally respect how you've decided to use at least part of your platform to talk about real issues like this, this is a great, it's, it's fantastic. So I'm, I'm, oh, I'm honored to be part of that conversation. So thank you for giving me the opportunity. You're very um, kind. You well, you are too. So the, um, I often say to men, you have a responsibility to women to speak up and check, like when your friends are acting out in sexist ways, your, your workmate is, is, is saying things about women in this, in the workspace that you know are problematic. You have responsibility to, to women in your workspace to make, to say something or to do something to intervene in that situation. But you also have responsibility to guys and to guys that you say you care about. So for example, if your friend is treating his girlfriend poorly, and I'll give you, I'll give you a concrete example. Text, like, like if you're, you're a guy and you have a guy friend, and you're, you say you're a young guy, right? And you have a guy friend who's texting his girlfriend constantly. And to the point where you're thinking that this has gone well over the edge of, of sort of a normal, you know, infatuation or, you know, love or, you know, what have you. But he's like, he needs to know who she's with. He knows to know who's, what she's wearing. He needs to know where she is at all times. And he's constantly texting her and, and you're his friend and you see this. He's, he's with you and he's doing this. What is your responsibility to her? Yes. Let's talk about your responsibility to the girlfriend who you might or might not be close with. You might not even know her, but what do you have a responsibility to her? Let's talk about that. But do you also have responsibility to him? He's your friend. And if you have, if you're minimally checked into the warning signs for abuse in relationships, you know that this is a red flag because he's controlling her or he's trying to control her, which could mean that he's physically abusing her or could already, or it could mean that he's on the road towards that because we know from decades now of working with men who are abusive that there's a, there's a pattern of behavior that begins with non physical forms of controlling behavior that sometimes graduates into physical forms of controlling behavior, like physical violence and the threat of violence. Yeah. If you know that and he's your friend, 
Don't you have responsibility to interrupt it and say, dude, you you got some issues here. I, I You're my friend, but I, the way you're talking about, you know, texting your girlfriend, the way you're trying to, I, I'm kind of concerned about you. That to me is an act of integrity and strength and friendship with the guy, as well as a, an act of responsibility to the girl or to the woman. If you frame it in those terms that you're helping as a man, you're actually helping other men and you're actually coming to their assistance because they're doing something that's harmful, not just to her, but potentially to him. Then it changes the conversation for a lot of guys. Yeah, because it's also, it's not a happy headspace. That of an abuser is not happy headspace. And, and you know, it's unpopular, I guess, to talk about it in an empathetic way because of how much pain they cause other people. But I was in, when I was 20... 22, almost 23, I was in an abusive relationship. And again, as you said, it started with just kind of microaggressions verbally that turned into very abusive language and language that would undermine my confidence and my importance in the world and would make me feel as though my friends don't really like me. Only he really likes me. Only he understands me. I'm only safe with him, which was a method of isolating me from everyone. And then as things progressed, it became very quickly physical and sexual violence. So I've watched that pattern go by and felt exactly what it feels like to be the victim of that. But also I was watching this man in constant turmoil. This wasn't fun for him. He was, uh, and it's, you know, I don't have, I'm not throwing a huge pity party for him, but he would feel disgusted with himself. Not all men do, but a lot of men do afterwards. It would kind of be like he would just switch and snap and then afterwards feel tremendous remorse. He would feel guilty. He would see the way that I was crying and how I was disgusted by him and, and how afraid I was of him. And he wouldn't like that. And he was also having to be secretive with his friends about the way that he was treating his girlfriend. He was isolating himself. Like it's a lonely, scary, guilty, shameful space to live in. And and we should work the most hard to set victims free or to be preventative in our in our care of victims. But also this is not a healthy or happy headspace for those who harm the victims. And we need to help those people as well to prevent them from not just harming others, but also harming themselves. Well said, and thank you for sharing that. And I, I, and and I think you flagged earlier, just a few moments ago, that some people like recoil at the mm-hmm. at the idea of being of, of expressing any kind of empathy for someone who's committing harm against another person. And I appreciate that, but I don't I don't think it's one or the other. I mean, I think if we care about victims and survivors, then we have to figure out how to do it better on the other side. In other words, we have to figure out how to prevent men from doing these things and not just using criminal penalties as the only as the only go-to for our solutions. I mean, the whole, you know, the whole movement towards restorative justice, which by the way has been led by people of color and women of color, including women of color, who didn't want the only response to domestic and sexual violence to be a criminal justice response where the state comes in and, you know, throws these guys in jail. By the way, some guys need where to be Where they're in only jail. going to experience more violence, by the way, well, and maybe participate or be the victim of more violence and they come out a more violent person, that's, perhaps. That's true too. And I appreciate that. And But, but, I, but I, yes, that, that's, it's true. There's no doubt the prison system and the jail system in mm-hmm. the United States is just, an, and, and elsewhere, is just an absolute uh, violent sort of subculture where where guys are 
arming up or, or, you know, sort of armoring up against other guys if they aren't, if they aren't already in a defensive crouch about the, the dangerous world that they live in, if you will. In, once they are in prison, they're even more armed up against, you know, kill or be killed. You have to, you have to, you know, every, everybody's, it's dog eat dog world. But the point is, I do think some men do need to be, some people do need to be in prison. Some people do need to be separated from society because mm-hmm. they are a threat to people's safety. And I think the safety, for example, of women in, when it comes to the sexual assault and domestic violence issues is way more important than what's, you know, than, than the yeah. man, you know, whatever happens to the man, the women's and children's safety and other men's safety is more important. However, if we want to get to a society where we are, dramatically reducing the levels of violence, we have to ask these more difficult questions like what is what is going on in these men's psyches? What is going on in the normative culture that we generation after generation, we socialize boys in such a way that a certain percentage of them are acting out in these ways and harming women and men and, you know, and themselves. We have to do it differently. The, the status quo is not working. So I just want to I just want to reemphasize it's possible to be to be both centering the needs of victims and survivors and not, quote unquote, feeling sorry for the abuser. It's possible to focus on changing the culture and and and, and thinking more empathetically with boys and men's experience and not making excuses for their bad behavior. You can do both at the same time. You know, we, we're homo sapiens with big brains. We can hold numerous thoughts in our head at the same time and we can hold people accountable for their crimes and we can step back and ask what's going on and how can we change it? A hundred percent. And my only point about prison is the fact that that person at some point will likely be released from prison, be it right. three years, eight years, 15 years, 25 years that person is is likely going to come out of that jail potentially more violent or having infused or been surrounded by more toxic masculinity etc and so it doesn't it the the punitive system makes sense but it would be better to treat the cause rather than always just the symptoms amen. in my opinion amen and by the way understanding the perpetrator is not excusing the perpetration exactly. It's actually, it makes us a lot safer to be able to see the warning signs, interrupt the warning signs and, and, and to be able to spot patterns, create patterns that people can understand, which I believe you've done extensively throughout your career. And I want to get into that in a second. So will you break down for me, why are men so violent? Tiny question, but we've been talking so much about, you know, men's violence against women, men's violence against children, men's violence against men. Right now, we're not saying that women's violence doesn't exist against uh, women, children and men. But seeing as it is the overwhelming majority that is committed by men, where does this come from? Why, in spite of there being so much information out there about what a problem this is, clearly not enough, but so much information when we see so many murders of women that don't make any sense and, and so many sexual crimes against women... Why is it not changing enough? And and where does it come from mostly? What is it? What is causing this? Well, I appreciate the spirit of the question. (laughs) I I, I have to say a phenomenon as extensive, as pervasive, and as trans-historical as violence, it's impossible to give one you know, definitive mm-hmm. answer. So, so having said that, I mean, I, I appreciate that there people want answers, but there isn't one specific answer. One thing I would say, it's not genetic and biological at its root. I would say one way to think of, and when I say it's not genetic or biological at its root, you could say 
that humans, including male humans, um, are born with the capacity to commit violence. It would be, it would be, I think, silly to say otherwise, looking at the bloody history of our species. We, we are born with the capacity to commit violence. Um, so in that sense, it's biological or genetic. But we also are, guess what? Born with the capacity for nonviolence. And you could say, to the extent that people say that violence is predetermined, you know, genetically or biologically, so is nonviolence. So, so it's, it, we are, we, and most, for example, most men are not violent. So what, wh- what is it? Our genetics are different than the men who act out violently? I don't think so. So I think it's, it's important to acknowledge that it's, it's not a question of whether biology is driving this or genetics is driving this. It's how do we organize our societies? How do we socialize boys? How do we define manhood? How do we, how do we use our big homo sapien brains to figure out ways of interacting with each other that don't rely on sort of, you know, knuckle dragging Cro-Magnon kind of like, you know, like, like, like unthinking beasts who are just going out and can't control their hormones. It's not, it's silly. Right. So, but then the question becomes, um, well, one question is, um, what is violence? In my thinking, violence is not an end unto itself. It's a means to an end. Like violence is used what's called instrumentally with a purpose. And the question is, what is the purpose? Why is violence being used? So, for example, in domestic violence, in, you know, again, the battered women's movement and the battered intervention movement have been teaching us this for the past, you know, almost 50 years. Oftentimes when a man in a heterosexual relationship is physically abusive to his girlfriend or his wife, it's not because he has a bad temper or he has an alcohol problem. It's because for some reason he feels the need to be in control or have his needs be met, you know, his emotional needs, his physical needs, his sexual needs. And if he has to use force or the threat of force to get what he thinks he needs, then he, in some sense, feels like a license to do that. Now, I'm not saying that all men are thinking about this. And I'm, and I do think that there are men who have other psychological, emotional, and even mental health challenges that are factors in their abusive behavior. But this ideology, this belief that men's Emotional, sexual, and, you know, other needs should be met by women. And that force is a legitimate, maybe it's a last resort, but it's a legitimate way to get what you're, you're, you need. If you don't address the underlying belief system, then what are you doing? You're just, you're just scratching the surface when you're talking about, you know, he needs anger management. He needs to figure out, or maybe he needs to drink less because when he drinks, he starts acting out. These are the things that people say who, because they don't really, Either they don't understand the deeper belief system that underlies the abuse or they don't want to they don't want to go there because it's because it's really, you know, some people are invested in this in this notion that, you know, perpetrators are just sick or they're just crazy or they're just and boys will be boys or, or or boys will be boys, which, by the way, is the most anti-male thing somebody can say. You, you know, people say mm-hmm. boys will be boys as a way to defend bad behavior by boys or by men. They'll say, what do you expect? Boys will be boys. It stereotypes them. And it, it reduces them. It says boys and men are not ethical beings who can make complex moral and ethical choices. They're just kind of beasts and you just got to get used to it. They're just going to do these things. By the way, Jamila, this is a key thing. Oftentimes the people defending bad behavior by men by saying boys will be boys are often, you know, conservative and right wing politically who then accuse feminists of being anti-male. Right. And yet you don't hear feminists saying boys will be boys. You know why? Because feminists have too much respect for men 
than to say boys will be boys because they expect more of men. But right conservatives who say boys will be boys, they say they respect and they're defending men, but they actually are degrading men. And they're actually they're actually the anti-male ones because they're they're saying that boys and men can't help themselves. They can't do any better. Right. Which is, by the way, flipping this on its head. Feminists actually have, I'll repeat it, feminists have too much respect for men than to make silly statements like boys will be boys because they know that men can be better. And I often I often say boys and men can either rise to our expectations or they can sink to our expectations. And we have to raise our expectations. Men can be and are better. And, and when, and when those of us who are men don't speak like, like I'm speaking and the only ones who say these things are women, then oftentimes men will, because of sexism, and I appreciate this is, you know, this is, this is where this gets complicated, complicated is that sometimes men will delegitimize things that women are saying because they are women. Because these men are invested in this worldview where men are either smarter or know more than women, or women don't understand men. They, they, you know, we, we men, we understand men, and those women don't understand what's, you know, what's really going on for us. But if men don't say these things in this standing side by side with women who are saying these things, then we're allowing um, that sexism to continue. And we're allowing those women like yourself who have the guts to say some of these things to stand alone against a lot of angry men who are trying to deflect and blame women for just telling the truth, both about their own experience and about what they see in terms of men and, and the, and the behavior that so many men are engaging in that harm them, the, the, the men themselves. And the, the good, the good news, if you will, about all this is that, is that there's another way to do all this, which is we need more men who are just willing to be honest. We need more men who are willing to read the books that women have been writing and take the courses and listen to the podcasts and, and gain more insight into this. And then, you know, step up and take some risks. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Let's talk about the media, because I've talked about this a bunch for maybe 12 years publicly. The problematic media that reinforces like ridiculous constructed gender stereotypes. And how much that uh, that harms men's worldview, uh, also all genders' worldview, really. Uh, would you like to talk about that? Sure. The media is the great pedagogical force of our time. It's the great teaching force of our time. People learn more and are taught more by media than any single source of information. That's, that's the reality in the 21st century. Terrifying. Okay? Yeah. It is, but it's, it's, it is our, it is, it is the world, right? Mm-hmm. And, and by the way, one of the, one of the reframes that I do, ling- linguistic reframes around this subject matter is you'll, you'll often hear people say things like, well, violence, if it's not genetic or predetermined, uh, biologically or genetically, it must be, um, learned behavior. People say this. 
And I say, I'd rather say it's taught behavior rather than learned behavior because learned behavior is passive. Like they're just learning it. But if you're, if you say taught behavior, it shifts the onus of responsibility onto those of us who are teaching, for example, boys and young men, what it means to be a man. And because the media is the great teaching force of our time, it is critically important to look at the way that we're, we as a society or, you know, globally certainly are teaching boys and men normative ideas about manhood. And by the way, at the same time, teaching girls and women normative ideas about femininity and mm-hmm. how to fit in and how to, how to conform to certain norms or there's punishment, right? I mean, there's, in both cases, if you don't conform to certain norms, you're going to pay consequences. And, and this, you know, this leads, you know, this leads often, I think, in, in no small part to the suicide rates amongst men and not just men who are over the age of 50, but also young men are killing themselves at alarming rates more and more every year. And and part of that, I think, has been attributed to the the belief systems they've they've attained from from toxic masculinity, like not being able to be sensitive, like not being able to talk about your feelings, like not being able to talk about mental mental health, because you're so afraid of being accused of femininity. That's right, because vulnerability in the in the in the silly gender binary system that we have, vulnerability is seen as a feminine quality, and a, a quote unquote real man is supposed to be be able to you know kind of suck it up and deal with it, and and to acknowledge vulnerability, which is by the way another way of saying to be honest with yourself and with others, because we're all vulnerable, and the pretense of invulnerability doesn't fool anybody who is minimally checked in emotionally or psychologically sophisticated. I mean, it's 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 an absurdity. But you see these men walking around. I mean, you know, I got it. I got it all going on. I'm I'm okay. I, I mean, guys will go to, and I'm guilty of this too. By the way, I, I don't mean to say this self righteously. Guys go up to each other. How you doing, man? I'm doing good. How you doing? I'm doing good. How's the family? Pretty good. And it's like you could be I'm in British, turmoil. So that's not gendered over in Britain. Like that's just how we are. <laughs> I've, well, no, no, I've come I to America to be able to figure out oh, how to talk about okay, my feelings. Okay, but I, but, but uh, I <laughs> yeah, hear you. Definitely more prevalent amongst men, of course. Yeah, but but see, the thing is, you could be in turmoil, and you say that though. You say you say I'm doing good. How you how you doing? I'm doing good. I mean, because the, the idea I'm not and I'm not saying that in every social interaction you have to like be, you know, revealing your deepest, you know, anxieties. That's not yes, what I'm saying. It would be saying. very grueling for checkout assistants and uh, <laughs> yes. And people that's working by the way, that, in but, <laughs> That's right. But um, honestly, that gets caricatured all the time, even in, including in media. Like, in other words, the, the idea that a man being, quote unquote, sensitive, it's like so, you know, soft and weak. And are, are we are we glorifying some kind of, you know, just grow up and be, a, you know, be, a you know, it's 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 more complicated than that. It's fucking amazing. I've only just realised this just now, which obviously means I'm super late to the party, but every time there is a sensitive, thoughtful character in any film I've watched, uh, especially a romantic comedy, but like any film, he's always of a certain physical frame. The casting is always a very slight man, a very thin man. He wears cardigans, not a full sweater or a hoodie. He's a cardigan man. He wears a shirt buttoned up. Often he'll have glasses, long-ish hair. And, and, and if you ever see a man of someone like John Cena's build, for example, the wrestler, the pro wrestler who's now turned into an actor or Dwayne Johnson, the rock, if they're saying something sensitive, it's used as a kind of punchline of lol. Isn't it hilarious that this big manly man has got any kind of vocabulary around talking about emotions? That's the, the setup that we think of these very like sort of slight and a quote unquote, and I'm not in any way diminishing their appearance, but puny 
men is the way that they're framed. Puny, feminine looking men already. They're the only ones who could have any kind of sensitivity. And the big, strong men are just alpha and they don't have, they don't waste time talking like this. I've never even thought about that before. No, no. no. Well, I appreciate that. that and you're, and it's, you're, it's a great insight. It's a great insight. And, it, and by the way, this is, the, the advertising industry knows all this, right? I mean, they, they, for example, I've used this little story about light beer, you know, light beer from Miller, which is, you know, with the story of light beer from Miller is an example of how media can be used in a, in a constructive way. Although in, in the, in the example that I'm about to use, it's, it's about beer and beer marketing, which is not, I'm not saying that you're going to change the world with, through better beer marketing, mm-hmm. but in, in 1972, Miller Brewing Company bought the rights to Meisterbrau Light, which is a beer that Meisterbrau, which was a small Chicago brewery, had been attempting to market to women as a diet beer. And Miller had, had a problem because men comprised in the early 1970s, something like 85% of the beer market. And what guy was going to drink, who as a beer drinker, was going to drink a diet beer targeted towards women. So what they did is they hired a series of football players, American football players, big, tough guys, white and black, and they put them in barroom settings. They had arguments. I don't know if you ever heard of these uh, this campaign, but it was taste great, less filling. And these guys would start arguing with each other about the quality of this beer. One would pick taste great and the other would say less filling. And so what it did was it had these tough guys arguing with each other about this beer, which then became by association a masculine beer, it no longer was associated with women and diets, but rather hyper masculine men. And light beer from Miller became one of the, the campaign for light beer from Miller became one of the most successful advertising campaigns in the 1970s and 1980s. And, and light beer became the official beer of the National Football League at a certain point. The point, the point here is that people in the advertising world realize if you want to get guys to change their behavior, in this case, around the purchase and consumption of a product that had been identified as a women's product, the way to do it was through the leadership of men who have already achieved a certain kind of status, and it will make it easier for other guys to identify with the product if the tough guy footballers have already said it's okay. And I think this is what's happening, by the way, in the National Football League and the National Basketball Association in particular, where men have come forward and said that they have emotional and mental health issues and this is interesting that this is happening with Naomi Osaka right now. And she's a woman tennis player, but other professional athletes, including men who have said, I have depression. Michael Phelps, the greatest men's swimmer of all time, who said, I have, you know, mental health challenges. I have issues with depression. And it's, it's so powerful when you have a man who's achieved so much in, in, in traditional terms, say, you know what, so I, I sometimes need help, I, you know, and it's not a bad thing. It's an, it's an acknowledgement of my humanity. I think we're starting to shift a little bit. And to, that's, that level of honest vulnerability is compatible with strength and power and competence. It's not, it's not, you're not going to melt into the ground and be, and, and not be a functioning human being just because you acknowledge that you, you don't always have it figured out. But having a six foot four, like gold medalist Olympian is the way that that feels acceptable, right? Well, to some men where they're like, that guy represents what I see as manliness and manhood. And so if he's struggling with this, then it somehow means I'm allowed to. 
Because there is a feeling of like, I'm not allowed to dress that way. I'm not allowed to talk that way. I'm not allowed to use this vocabulary. I'm not allowed to call out other men on their behavior that I find problematic towards women. Uh, we need more, you know, I part, part of my heritage is South Asian and a big thing that I, you know, we have horrific men's violence against women. And by the way, thank you so much for pointing out how problematic the way that we use language is, because it's going to hopefully forever change the way that I talk about this. I will now always make sure that I'm no longer passive as much as I can. But, Mm -hmm. you know, we are seeing alarming numbers of sexual violence in particular uh, by men against women in India. It is, it is so widespread, so prevalent, so terrifying. And all we have are a handful of women speaking up about it. None of the big cricket players, none of the big uh, celebrities, the Bollywood celebrities, no politicians, no men in power who represent, you know, quote unquote, masculinity, manhood, manliness, who have so many men hanging on to their every word and action. None of them taking a stand for women and for their safety against men or from men. And so it's something that I'm constantly calling out for and, and desperately wishing that while we shouldn't need a certain stereotype of man to be the ones in particular to speak out, right now, because of the setup of our society that we cannot deny being so infused with toxic masculinity, we, we need those men to come and speak out about these issues. We need yes. all men to participate. Yes, we do. And if they're not doing it, you know, guess what? They're not being good leaders. They're not just, they're not just letting down women, which they are. If by not speaking up, they're actually not being good leaders for the 21st century. So, for example, if you're a man in, in you're a leader in, in India, in the UK, in the United States, anywhere, and, and you're in a position of influence, cultural influence, political, social, you know, in religious communities, you know, you're a labor union leader, you're a coach, you're a teacher, you're a school administrator. There's so many men, and, and of course, fathers and uncles and other men who have incredibly important um, role to play in the lives of young men and boys, as well as young women and girls and people outside the binary as well. If you're a person and you're a man in those positions and you're in those positions of leadership and you're not doing your part in speaking out about men's violence against women and advancing gender justice and equality, you're not just letting down women. You're actually being a bad leader in the 21st century and you're not helping your community. You're not helping your country. That silence is not actually helping anybody. I think it needs to be said like that. I, uh, I loved in your speech when you were talking about the fact that you took issue with someone referring to your work with, you know, communities like the Marine Corps, like they were talking about the fact that, you know, oh, do you do sensitivity training? You were like, no, I don't do sensitivity training. I provide leadership training. That's what I'm teaching people. Like I'm teaching them how to be good leaders. This work that you are discussing throughout this entire podcast is something that you describe as leadership training. And I love that. And I think that that is so appropriate and empowering to men. Yes, it is. And it's, uh, thank you. And it's aspirational and positive. It's, mm-hmm. it's like, instead of, it's instead of like my colleague, Esther Solar, who's the founder of an organization in San Francisco called um, Futures Without Violence. She says, we need to invite men into the conversation rather than indict them as potential rapists and abusers. So invite rather than indict, which is related to what I'm saying is like, if you invite them in, like we need more men who have the courage and strength to be leaders, to take a stand. Um, and, and th- rather than you better stop doing these bad things, it's a, it's a positive challenge in a way. And it reframes the, the conversation. And by the way, I don't think there's anything wrong with sensitivity. I think sensitivity is a good quality that humans mm-hmm. should aspire to. 
but it is coded feminine and it, and it is coded feminine in a way that a lot of men hear it and think, oh, you're trying to turn me into a woman. And again, I don't think that's necessarily a horrible thing. I'm just saying, if you want to be realistic about how change exactly. happens, exactly, right. One of the ways is reframing it. And if we reframe it as a leadership issue, there's an awful lot of men who are leaders or aspire to be leaders. And by the way, Jamila, you don't have to be in a formal position of leadership to be exercising leadership. So, for example, I often say that if you're a 15-year-old boy and your friend tells a rape joke and you turn to your friend and say, hey, dude, can you joke about something else? I don't find jokes about rape funny, you know? Maybe maybe this 15-year-old's mother is a rape survivor. Maybe he knows how big an issue this is. And he's, you know, anyways, he might not see himself as a leader in any formal sense of that word. He might not have any credentials next to his name that suggests that the society has ordained him as a leader. But the act of saying to your friend that that's not funny is a leadership act. And he's 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 executed a leadership protocol. He's seen something that's wrong. He's he's decided that I have to I can't remain silent and he's taken action. That's what a leader does. So by framing it this way, I think that you can a lot of guys can start thinking about the ways in which they could actually step up and be have their actions be closer to their sense of themselves or what and who they want to be then if you tell them don't do this and if you're if you're if you're more like negative rather than issuing a positive challenge 100% and what part do you think like the media the mainstream media like the press movies music etc what do you think we could improve upon there well, one thing, and I've well. one thing, and I've heard you speak about porn culture. Yeah. Oh my God, porn is so implicated in the socialization of heterosexual boys and young men's sense that sex with women is sex that is is an act that men are doing to women. It's not a reciprocal, pleasurable experience. It's something that men are doing to women. And the brutality that so many boys and young men associate heterosexual sex with from their exposure to porn culture is it's impossible to talk about reducing sexual violence and sexual harassment without talking about the normalization of sexual violence and harassment in porn culture, which is, by the way, the by far the single most important form of uh, medium of sexual socialization in the world. And, 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 and porn is media. Porn is an, is an example of the role that media plays in sort of normalization. And by the way, the effects of not just porn, but media more generally, when it comes to violence, it's not about imitation necessarily. It's about normalization and desensitization. And so, so think about all the boys whose sexual awakening has been accompanied by masturbating to porn that is showing men ridiculing women calling them names while they're doing something to those women, right? Yeah. And but, I mean, there's a huge amount of rape pornography out on the internet, just like completely hyper-normalized mainstream rape pornography. I did a documentary with the BBC back in like 2012 about this. And we were talking about the harm of pornography to children. And we cut this out of the documentary at the time because we didn't want to... Uh, exposed this little boy's privacy, but he was only 12. He put his hands up in a sex education class and asked the question, 
If I rape a girl, will she start to enjoy it eventually like they do in porn? Right. And that was his most like genuine, innocent question. He's 12 years old. He was a virgin. He'd never had any kind of interaction with a girl that was intimate. But that was what he wondered because that's what he's being explicitly taught. That, you know, at the end of some of these, uh, these videos, the woman starts to have, you know, an orgasm and starts to enjoy it. And that's the programming. That's right. That's right. And, and, and honestly, it's pervasive. And, 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 and so many boys exposed to porn at 10, 11, 12, who are innocent, you know, when they're, when they're going through puberty, they, they, you know, of course they're turned on by seeing, if the heterosexual ones are turned on by seeing, you know, women's bodies. And, and I, believe me, I appreciate that. I'm not criticizing that. But what they get when they get there is not just bodies having sex and, you know, mutual pleasure. There's, there's, there's seeing the incredible level of brutality that's been completely normalized. And one of the reasons why this, there hasn't been a conversation about this more broadly. I mean, there's many reasons, but one of them is this notion that being critical of porn means you're, you're a prude or you're against sex, which is total BS. It's like, Mm -hmm. it's like the idea that somehow you're looking at this, this industry that's created this normalization of misogyny and criticizing it because you're uptight about sex. I'm just offended by that. It's just, yeah. it's, B, it's BS. But you don't even have to be, it's not even just being uptight about sex. You don't even have to be against porn, the existence of porn in order to be against where porn has gone. Mm-hmm. You know, there is, there is some pornography in the world that does show mutual pleasure, does show sensitivity, softness, dare I say it, maybe sometimes even a bit of romance, if that's what you're looking for. There is some safe pornography that exists. And there are some people in the world who cannot access sex in any way uh, for many variants in their life. And they can enjoy that form of entertainment or sexual satisfaction via safe pornography. The problem is, is that we live in a culture of shock and outrage being the things that most travel. And so the more shocking, the more dehumanizing, the more violent you can make footage, the more likely it is to be reshared. Even if someone didn't find it that uh, sexually arousing, they'll share it to show someone else like, oh my God, have you seen what happens to this woman or these women or this young girl in this video? Can you believe it? So because of the travel of whatever is the most shocking, you know, which is also part of why there was so much media coverage of Donald Trump when he was in power, the more shocking it is, the faster and the further it will travel. And so I'm not even anti-pornography, but I'm very anti where pornography is going and how little attention is being put into not just what happens to a lot of the women in those actual videos, but what's happening to women around the world because of the lessons men are learning. And then sometimes hoping to, you know, reapply in the bedroom or in the street. Yes, or consider that, or that that they consider it normative or normal or expected. I mean, that's the desensitization piece. There's so many men who have grown up and not just boys anymore. I'm talking about now several generations of men who have grown up with incredible brutality in porn and humiliation, men's humiliation of women while they're having sex with them. There's whole generations have grown up with that as in a sense, normative. And by the way, it's important to say that, yeah, of course, individuals 
can use their own sort of brain and say, wait a second, that's porn. And that's, I mean, that's not real life, et cetera. But that's, there's decades of media literacy research. And I'm, I consider my, I am a media literacy educator. I make films about masculinities and violence. My first Mm -hmm. film is called Tough Guys, by the way, Tough Guys, G-U-I-S-E. Yeah. Right. Violence, manhood and American culture. And what I was doing was building on feminist media literacy work that was looking at images and narratives about women. Like Gene Kilborn put together a slide lecture, which became a film called Killing Us Softly, Advertising Images of Women, where she was showing back in the starting in the 70s and then into the modern era, if you will, about how showing women as thinner and more wayfish and more girlish and whiter than real women in the real world was a form of take in. in, I'm talking about in advertising and in Mm -hmm. media representation was a form of taking power in a sense, taking power away from women as as women in the concrete realms of politics and business and the professions and education were challenging men in these various ways, you know, in in these traditionally all male domains. At the same time, the culture was flooded with images of women taking up less space, being much thinner. And like I said, and younger and girlish and submissive, yeah, submissive and whiter than real women in the real world. At the same time, I, I started learning, I learned from Jean Kilborn and then I started doing my work in the 1980s about representations of men and masculinities in media. And I was trying to figure out how are we teaching boys and men a certain kind of ideology or belief about manhood that connects manhood to power and control and dominance and violence? And how does the media help to, the narratives and images in media help to reinforce certain, you know, stereotypical understandings in that way? And by the way, everybody who does media literacy work knows that there are counterexamples. In other words, there are thoughtful and more complex uh, narrations and characters of men, for example, who are self-reflexive or, or you know, uh, you know, inward looking or, you know, aware or more or non-binary in their in the way that, that the way that they uh, evidence, you know, gender uh, traits, if you will. But there is still a dominant culture and there's still a dominant idea that a real man, you know, gets what he wants. A real man uses force. A real man doesn't express his vulnerability. Um, and, and it has enormous influence on men and boys. And by the way, the United States is the leading exporter of media in the world. It's also, and, and violent media, right? So we're, we, we in the United States are producing media that's disproportionately affecting people all over the world in, in the sense that we're reinforcing this idea of manhood as, you know, being, if you will, violent. We also, and, and the United States is also the number one arms exporter in the world. We export more weapons of war and weapons of violence than any country at the same time. So, I mean, it's, all this is connected. I mean, interconnected. And if we really want to have a healthier world and, a, and less violence in the world, we have to figure out ways, those of us in the United States, but also beyond how we can create narratives about manhood that are less connected to both violence on the one side and the sexual entitlement to women's bodies and 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 sexual the, the heterosexual act as men doing something to women as opposed to it being reciprocal these are giant ways that the media helps to either shape or perpetuate certain kind of norms that directly contribute to the ongoing problems before I leave you, because you've just been so wonderful and generous and exceptional. Um, sure. Can you tell me, and this is not a, it's not a small question, but for parents who are listening to this podcast right now, who know that they can't make an impact on pornography, on the media at large, uh, on our societal toxic masculine messaging, what can they do with, uh, 
young people who currently identify as boys in their household? Well, I would say a couple things. One is um, parents are incredibly influential in the lives of their children. And by the way, people who aren't parents, who are also caregivers and mentors to young people, have an incredibly important role in the lives of young people. But they're, they're not alone because the culture is, is also doing its thing. So no matter how good they are as parents, they also, or, or as mentors, they also have to contend with a culture that is teaching their kids about these various, you know, ideologies and beliefs about manhood and womanhood and, and beyond and, and race and ethnicity. So, so what, I'm just saying that because people, People often blame parents when things go wrong with their kids, and it's not really fair necessarily because there's a whole culture that is raising our kids. But I would say one, one key thing, and this is as a concept that has to be applied in various ways, but we have to define strength differently. A lot of people will say about, especially about boys uh, and young men, pushing back against some of the things that I've been saying or, or you've been saying, they'll say, what are you saying? We need to make men soft. We need to make men weak. Or, you know, you're, you're trying to, you know, undermine men's, you know, power in, in various ways. And I, and, and my response is, I, I don't think that we want to make men weak. And in fact, I don't believe that for a, for a millisecond. I, I'm a man. I identify as a man and I don't, I, I see myself as a strong man. And, mm-hmm. you know, I have a son and I want him to be a strong young man. And, I, the question is not whether we want boys and men to be strong. The question is, how do you define strength? To me, the definition of strength is the critical piece. Is the old definition, and this is somewhat of a caricature, but the old definition is somebody who has the ability to impose his will through force or the threat of force. That's, that's being strong. Or the person who, who denies vulnerability, who, who won't acknowledge his own need to help, to, for help or to reach out to others for help. Somehow that's supposed to be strong. I don't, I don't buy that. I mean, mm. I just don't buy it. I think it's, it's ridiculous. It's not sustainable. It's not sustainable. It might be a, a small burst of some type of momentary strength, but it's not sustainable. It's not, it, it doesn't create durability at all. No, it doesn't. And it's not evolutionarily, uh, evolutionarily successful. We are killing ourselves as a species. It is actually maladaptive to the realities of life in the 21st century, both environmentally and socially. For example, women are not going back into the, you know, into this, into second class status across race and ethnicity and religion and everything else all over the world. The, the, the tectonic shift that's been happening for the past couple hundred years and accelerated in the past half century is women are not going back to second-class status. I mean, in some countries, there's there's attempts to, I mean, obviously, there's attempts to roll back progress, mm-hmm. but it, 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 the tides of history are are, are, are moving, you know? And, yeah. and men who want to actually be part of those societies and 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 get on board with the with the tides of history need to understand that women are not going to go back so how are we as men those of us who are men and those of us who are influential in the lives of young men how are we going to help them adjust to these changes rather than try to pretend that somehow we're going to hold back the tides of history how do we help them adjust one of the ways to do that is to define strength as the ability to be introspective or self-aware to be to, to think about maybe I don't have all the answers and maybe that's okay. And maybe I need to learn from women as opposed to always be the one who's, you know, the authority, if you will, or always be the one whose needs come first in a relational context. Maybe that's not a, a sign of strength. Maybe a sign of strength is, is to say, you know what? 
I, I don't know how to do this, or I don't, or I'm, I'm unclear about this, or I need some help. And by the way, a man, like this is one of the reasons why Donald Trump's presidency, in my opinion, and so many others' opinion, of course, was such a disaster. I mean, it's on so many levels, both on policy and on sort of persona levels, was that his, his notion of not apologizing and not acknowledging mistakes, because that would be somehow acknowledging weakness, is such a caricature of, of masculine strength. In other words, if you're confident, if you're a man and you're confident and you make a mistake, you just admit it. I'm sorry. I screwed up. I, I should have, I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have done that. I'm sorry that I made you feel this way and I'll try to do differently next time. That to me is a strong man. But to say, mm-hmm. oh, I, I wouldn't admit, admit making, making a mistake because that admits that I'm weak is, it's embarrassing. So I would say to, to parents and others who are in the lives of young people to help, especially boys, is to encourage them to, to, to think more broadly about what it means to be strong. And, you know, and, and, and being compassionate, being caring is a sign of strength, not weakness. Caring about other people's feelings, including girls' and women's feelings, is not, it doesn't mean you're soft. It means you're a good person. And, and some, some of the, some of the best qualities of human beings are not gendered qualities. This is, some of this is all artificial, right? This, this notion that, you know, power and strength is masculine, vulnerability and compassion and caring is feminine. This is, this is silliness. Right. It's silliness. And and we need to we need to encourage boys to boys to to exhibit a whole range of emotions and then not shame them when they evidence those emotions. And by the way, you can be a guy who in some you said this just a few moments ago, who in some parts of your life exhibit really strong and powerful sort of qualities and others. You're vulnerable. You're emotionally present. You're, um, you know, you know, sensitive, if you will, that's okay. Cause we're complex human beings, right? We're not, we can't be reduced to, you know, caricatures. And, and I do think that it, to get really to, to get, to bring it back to the, to the big picture, mm-hmm. feminists and, you know, intersectional feminist thinking and teaching and activism, um, has figured this out. I mean, it's all, it's all a work in progress, but has figured a lot of this out. And I think instead of men and people who are uh, trying to raise men, if you will, thinking of feminism as somehow antithetical or, or an other. antagonist yeah. as other, or but as antagonistic towards boys and men's lives and interests. I think that's a, that's a very problematic way to think about it. I think it's feminists have given us great insights into some of the ways in which Traditional notions of masculinity are both destructive and self-destructive for men and young men. And instead of, instead of working against feminism and the changes that are happening, how do we work with them in collaboration with the brilliant women who are pointing us in a direction that is healthier and more sustainable? My hope and wish as a feminist and what I understand of the people who I most look up to as feminist leaders is that we're not just looking to set women free. We also want to set men free. We recognize that men are in pain. We recognize that the patriarchy didn't just do a number on women. It did a huge number on men. We recognize that men are in pain. We are seeing the suicide rates. We are seeing the rise in violence. We don't want anyone to be in pain. We want to set everyone free. And and I think that that's something that I especially really want because I see the men around me suffering because of these things. I don't see them walking around happy as Larry, feeling very connected to everyone else on earth. They feel very isolated and afraid. There's so much fear in toxic masculinity. 
Uh, absolutely. I, I th- there, there's a millions, and if you look globally, billions of men living lives of quiet desperation, who have who have diminished lives, who are walking wounded, who 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 can't don't even have the language or certainly the permission to even explain what's happening to them and to get connected in a in a positive way. And I've seen. What you just said, I've seen that from the beginning, from the time I was a young guy at university when I started learning all of this. I, I've seen feminism as a vehicle for looking critically at men in a way that helps men. In addition, of course, it helps women and, 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 and it's going to reduce dramatically the level of violence and pain that men inflict on women and girls. No doubt about it. But there's no doubt that that's not incompatible with also improving the lives of men and boys. They are t- intertwined. So. If you are someone who is going out into the world, maybe you've heard this podcast and you feel ready to, uh, you know, carefully and uh, politely and safely interrupt toxic masculinity or violent rhetoric or behavior uh, from men, by men, of men, then just know that you're not trying to take them down a peg. You're not trying to harm them. You are just simply not giving up on men. The thing that I most hope that you do is don't give up on men. Don't give up on boys. Do not just dismiss them as being coded a certain way and being therefore incapable of change. If you yourself as a human being have noticed any change or progress in your own life, then there's no reason another individual isn't isn't capable of the same. I'm an imperfect person. I used to be a problematic, full-on misogynist, Jackson. I was very slut-shamey and rude and uh, didn't understand the concept patriarchy a mere 10 years ago. And I have changed. So therefore, I know for damn sure the men around me can change. So well said, uh, Jamila. And and by the way, it's true with white people. If you're white, woman, for example, and you know that you've been challenged to think about racism and think about the ways in which you perpetuate racism. Well, think about men can do this about sexism, too. Mm -hmm. They can they can grow. I mean, it it doesn't mean that they don't have certain advantages because they're a man in in a sexist world or that a white person has certain advantages. This is structural. It's political. So it's not just about personal growth, although part of it is about personal growth. So you can't be we can't be, you know, obviously naive about systemic forces. We, 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 I, I appreciate your, your, your sort of spirit of like, um, inclusivity and hope because I, I, I think it's accurate. I think it's, I don't think it's just, uh, fanciful. I think it's accurate. Men can change. Women can change. People can grow. And, and, and the status quo, we, the, the bottom line is the status quo is not working, right? The status quo is just not working. No. And, 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 and it, something has to change. And can I say also the, the great thing about the current moment and you're, centrally involved in this, which again, I admire greatly, but because of technological changes in the, in the, in the, in the forms of communication and particularly the, dig- the digital revolution and then the, the, the social media revolution, women like yourself have a voice that women in previous generations did not have. And, in, and, and part of what made me too, for example, even possible was social media. It wasn't like a new issue. I mean, mm-hmm. men's violence against women has been a big problem for decades centuries and millennia. This is not a new problem. What's new is that women and especially young women have had a voice to be able to talk about and narrate their experiences and connect with others. And now men have no excuse to say, I didn't know this was a problem or I didn't realize that it was such a big problem. It's like that's that's taken off the table as an excuse for men not to get involved, right? Because now we do know that 
there's tons of women, billions of women out in the world are saying, we want better. We don't want to live with this. We, we experience this on a daily basis and it's wrong and we can't keep going. So men have to say in the 21st century, what are we, how are we going to respond to these women and with integrity? And again, I, I'll, I'll, I'll narrow it to two choices. One is to defend, to be defensive and hunker down and say, it's not all men and it's not my problem and I'm not going to get involved and I'm sick of hearing men being bashed. And the other, which to me is an immature and problematic response or the other way is, what can I do? What can I do to be, you know, to, to adapt to this moment, to learn from these women, to, to respond to what they're saying? And how can I educate and politicize other men? How can I bring other men into the conversation? How can I get involved in organizations, you know, in my community or in the larger, you know, country or, or, um, or, or, or political body that I'm part of? How can I be part of the changes that have to happen? And if certainly if I'm an educator or a parent or another person who has influence in young people's lives, especially young boys' lives, and I'm a man, how can I show boys and young men that there's a way to be a man that is not taking down others to, to lift yourself up, but actually lifts up others as a way of lifting yourself up. I mean, I, I do think a lot of men will respond to that. And I think you've, I hope that you've had that experience, but I hope that going forward, the conversation that we're having right now will be seen like in a time capsule, a hundred years from now, will be seen as like, oh my God, back then it was unusual to hear a man say some of these things and have a dialogue with a woman about this kind of, about this kind of subject. They'll see it as like so obvious and so normal. Whereas today it's still an unusual thing. Mm-hmm. But again, I, I thank you for the opportunity to have this dialogue. Thank you so much, Jackson, for coming onto this podcast and for all of the work that you have done for decades now, for all of the books and documentaries that you have put out into the world, for going, traveling around the world and and educating the people who most need this information, who've been starved of this information. A lot of people haven't even had a choice as to whether or not they are indoctrinated into toxic masculinity. And so you're offering people a way out. You're offering people hope. And I really, really appreciate you. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure and honor to meet you. Back at you, Jamila. I hope, you know, may the wind be ever at your back. I love what you're doing. <laughs> I love what you're doing and I know you'll carry on. And, and, and I hope that our paths cross again. I'm sure they will. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. I Weigh with Jamila Jamil is produced and researched by myself, Jamila Jamil, Aaron Finnegan, and Kimmy Gregory. It is edited by Andrew Carson, and the beautiful music you are hearing now is made by my boyfriend, James Blake. If you haven't already, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show. It's a great way to show your support. We also have a bonus series exclusively on Stitcher Premium called Ask Jamila Anything. Check it out. You can get a free month of Stitcher Premium by going to stitcher.com forward slash premium and using the promo code iWay. Lastly, over at iWay, we would love to hear from you and share what you weigh at the end of this podcast. You can leave us a voicemail at 1-818-660-5543 or email us what you weigh at iWayPodcast at gmail.com. And now... We would love to pass the mic to one of our fabulous listeners. So Away being a writer, Away being a feminist, Away being a vegetarian and caring about the earth and my impact on it, um, Away being part of the beautiful Egypti Cupress community, Away being a sister, a daughter, a friend, and I also way trying my best against depression. Want to make mom's day? 
Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.